Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Hey, Carlos, how are you? Hi, Alberto. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Well, we, we got a little dusting of snow today, the first snow we've had since early December. So, You still getting snow over there? Just a little tiny bit. So, yeah, enjoy your enjoy your 80 or 90 degree weather there. <laughs> I, I, I really don't want to rub it in, but it's been a glorious day. Today. Uh, yeah, well. Blue skies, not not a cloud in them. Oh, my but, God. Well, but, you know, that's that's the reason we live in Miami. <laughs> you, you should have stayed down here. Well, uh, I, I like snow. I like cold. I'm, I'm weird that way. Well, I think snow is pretty cool as well, but. It's the sort of thing I'd like to visit, not uh, live with. Well, this is, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, some some of these uh, monks will be talking about today. The worse the weather, the worse the conditions, the happier they were. So <laughs> you segued us right into the next episode of the Christian Mysticism podcast. Uh, we left off last time with the story of St. Augustine the Prince of Mystics, and we touched on some of the monastic principles that affected or influenced him, and this episode, we're going to start talking about monasticism, so... Yeah, well, you know, the um, history of Christian mysticism is inseparable from the history of Christian monasticism, and there are various reasons for that, right? Uh, why Why are the two so tightly wound together. And it has to do mostly with the fact that mysticism is something that doesn't come out of the blue into anyone's life. It's part of a life commitment to certain principles and a life commitment to prayer, especially. And monasticism is the uh, social context in which constant prayer is made possible. Now, monasticism, you mentioned in the last episode, has a lot it has a lot to do with self-denial, with asceticism, yes. as, as you mentioned. And that's such a large part of it, isn't it? It is. It's not just Christian mysticism. I mean, throughout the world, when, where you find mystics, chances are you're going to find them living a, a certain kind of self-denying lifestyle. And I keep using that word lifestyle because it, you know, it's 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 a structure to your life, a style of living, in which you do not put yourself first, and you do not put your needs and wants first, and uh, this is true of all major religions that that have mystics. Uh, there's no such thing, at least I haven't run into it, of you know, completely self-indulgent mysticism. So at least not the ones you see in the movies. No, no, no. And, and there, there, I know of a very few cases of mystics who have become mystics reluctantly. I mean, it's something, as I said before, that you have to work at. It it just doesn't come without effort. Now you mentioned the self-indulgent, self-indulgent mystics, and one name came to mind. And I, I don't know if you would even consider him a mystic, but he sort of had some quote-unquote mystical powers. Rasputin. Oh, Rasputin is a uh, one of those strange cases in in the Russian Orthodox Church of these monks who um, claim to uh, obtain certain powers through their mysticism. But Rasputin is by no means a model Russian Orthodox saint or mystic. He did seem to have some uncanny powers and especially some uh, uncanny ability to control the royal family, especially the Tsarina. But he was, uh, by all accounts, at least what I have read, uh, not not exactly an ascetic, a self-denying monk. 
when you think of Rasputin, the last thing you think of is self-denial. Uh, <laughs> he, he was pretty self-indulgent. Yes. And I would almost go as far as to say a charlatan. Well, th these things happen. Th these things happen in the West, too, in, in, in uh, Western Christian monasticism. You, 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 have, you run into plenty of charlatans, and actually, we'll get to this in some other episode. There have been cases of, of mystics or mystical groups that have been accused of absolute self-indulgence. So it, it can happen, but the fact is that all of these um, self-indulgent mystics are not, let's say, let's, it, you've got a box in, in which the genuine mystics are, uh, they are outside the box precisely because of their, their self-indulgence. Yeah, it's almost like there's they live through a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, where they're trying to keep a constant connection with the spiritual realm, with the spiritual world, with God, and trying to deny the flesh, but they can't deny the flesh because they are in the flesh. They are alive. They still exist in this world. And that is the basic struggle. You know, the, 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 the three words used to describe what mystics have to struggle against are the world and we can talk about that what that means the world the flesh and the devil and those three terms come up continually in the history of of christian mysticism and there's a certain duality expressed uh, between the self and those three things the world the flesh and the devil it's always verse you versus them and and them versus you so it, it's a struggle it's a difficult struggle and we, we can get into the roots of that why why it is so in uh, christian theology and christian thinking and why it is that monasticism arose in the first place uh, because you you find it in the new testament you find this, uh, I won't say dualistic, because that has a very precise meaning, uh, but uh, there's a dualism involved. Uh, these binary structures of being, you versus this, you versus that, that versus you. And um, at the core of Christian mysticism, this is a, a duality and a struggle that never goes away. Now, we hear a lot about New Testament monasticism, and we know a lot about them, St. Anthony of the Desert. and But did monasticism exist in the Old Testament, in the old Jewish world, where their monastics, maybe not use the same term, but lived well, the same lifestyle? Not, not in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures per se, but at the time of Jesus, the Essenes, and a, a I think I brought them up. Uh, yeah, before. you did. You mentioned them in a in a previous episode. Yeah, the Essenes uh, lived a, a a kind of monastic lifestyle. Wouldn't and, you say John the Baptist lived one as well? well? Many experts think that John the Baptist uh, came from the Essene community. Yes, and they they had in fact set themselves apart from the world. Uh, but John the Baptist is a good example of a you know, pre-Christian ascetic person who denies themselves. And we find this dualism in some of the language employed by Christ in, in the Gospels, such as the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My kingdom is not of this world. Or in John, the Gospel of John, the flesh is of no avail. That's the King James translation, I think. The, the flesh is of no avail. It's a spirit that, you know, or uh, what, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, which, you know, is the same as spirit. And then you find it in Paul's letters too. Uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans. He tells uh, his, whoever's reading it, his letter, do not be conformed to this world. And then in Galatians, 517 he says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do 
and um, he also says in another one of his letters that you know it, it's a great struggle and and augustine focused on this passage too you know the things that i really know i i should do i can't bring myself to do and the things that i i know i should not do i find myself doing and that's what augustine called the great monstrosity you know that we're so divided us against our will and you know if we stop for um, just a, a minute and think what is this thing that ends up being called the will in the Greek New Testament and then translated as will uh, in English. What is that? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a power of the human self. It's the power of choosing. It's the power of choice. And the deal is in the New Testament that is very clear to Jesus and his apostles and to Paul that there is something wrong with the human will. Right? It just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And actually, the salvation being offered by Jesus is some kind of repair on the will. And in the passion narratives of the Gospels, he has to struggle with his own will. In his agony in the garden before his passion, he struggles with his will and actually uh, prays, you know, Please, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. He's speaking to God the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. So even even Jesus, the, the human God incarnate in the Gospels, has to struggle with his will to make the right choice. Or actually, in that scene of the agony in the garden, uh, what, you know, in Christian, in Christian theology through the centuries, that's a, that's a, very very important set of gospel passages the ones that have to do with the agony in the garden because they speak to uh, various things but one very important one is the full humanity of christ and that he had to struggle with his will as a human being because no one likes to suffer yeah the will is very powerful and you you see that theme throughout the entire new testament as you mentioned when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and and in Paul's letters to the Romans, and it kind of it reminds me of a, of an old song by an old alternative Christian group, which probably many of our listeners have never heard, but uh, a group called the Seventy Sevens, and they had a song that's titled "The Lust, the Flesh, the Eyes, and the Pride of Life." And the lyrics of the song, which I won't get into, but it, it basically is that struggle of the will. Yeah. And, I think it's based on that passage from Romans uh, written by Paul, but there is that constant struggle with the will, and it, and it appears to me that the monasticism wants to subdue that will in a, oh, yes. in a certain way. Oh, yeah. It's all about straightening it out. I mean, in the, the image of a broken or crooked will is, is dominant because you have to straighten it out. It's almost like you have a broken bone that has to be set. It's um, the very essence of both monasticism and mysticism is bringing one's will in alignment with God's will. And we'll have time in other episodes to, to um, explore some mystics who you know emphasize the will whereas other mystics emphasize the mind uh, and the ones that we find early on in christian history such as augustine they they put a great emphasis on on the will because the will is also uh, the the agent the human agency that makes you love love is is a matter of the will right so if, if you're going to love God and love your neighbor, it's your will with which you do this. So it has to be set straight, has to be aligned with God's will. Now, I have often thought about whenever I see something about monasteries or monks and you read stories about it or see it in a movie or something like that, I've always wondered what is their purpose in life other than thinking that their purpose in life is to get satisfaction from being able to connect to God directly? Well, a good question. I'm glad you asked it. 
because what is the purpose of monasticism? Uh, it has been described uh, for centuries as a place where you can, through great effort, uh, come to enjoy, and I'm quoting Thomas Aquinas, undisturbed contemplation of God. And it sounds awfully selfish, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. Because yeah. I know when we when we spoke of St. Augustine on the last episode, his quest was to join a monastery and just be in constant, uh, as you said, undisturbed contemplation with God, which I wouldn't mind having either, but we're also called to serve others yes. and to help others. So uh, I, I can't imagine it's a completely selfish endeavor. Well, that's because there's a paradox um, involved in, in this duality, right? Contemplation versus action. How can you love God and your neighbor? This undisturbed contemplation of God business sounds awfully selfish. And um, there, there is some truth to that. Uh, and I think the, you know, it, in the monastic tradition, there's a great self-awareness of this. And actually, it was one of my students many years ago who uh, put it all very nicely by saying in a comment in class. And we had already been several weeks into the, the semester. And, and he said, you know, these, these, these people we're reading, they keep talking about self-denial, but they're the most self-obsessed people I have ever had to read. <laughs> and there's a truth to that. There's yeah, a it does. It does come across that way sometimes. It can, uh, but there are so many points to take into consideration. And perhaps the first and most important is that the way monasticism developed, and we'll get into this in a, in a few minutes, you know, it, 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 it began with hermits who were all out in, the, out in the desert on their own, and then it developed into communal monasticism. But the key issue to keep in mind is that the monastic life is a life of prayer, and that's a fundamental connection to mysticism. You can't have mysticism without prayer. And these monks are praying far more than anyone else in the Christian community. And as this develops, you know, by the time of Augustine, by the fourth century, uh, there's this conviction that all these monks and nuns, men and women, praying all the time, they're praying for others. They're not just praying for themselves, right? They're not constantly praying, oh, God, uh, let me have union with you. No, they, they, they pray for the community. So they actually perform a great service to their fellow human beings by devoting their lives to prayer. And if you think of it uh, as a profession, right, or uh, a trade, a skill, monks then are, are, are no different from doctors or plumbers or any other kind of, you know, specialist who has uh, knowledge and a talent and dedicates their lives to doing something for others as doctors, plumbers, uh, and electricians do. They pray, and they pray for everybody. They're not just praying for themselves. And there's also this uh, second point to take into consideration, which is the command that Jesus issues in the Gospels. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In another Gospel, it's be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. But, it, you know, this quest for perfection, which can seem to be very selfish. After all, they're leaving the world behind. It can seem awfully selfish. There's also this conviction that grows by the time of Augustine in the fourth century, when monasticism is really taking off like a rocket, to use that imagery. It's just now the, the sheer number of men and women who are becoming monastics it, it is a quantum leap from what it had been before. Why is that happening? Various reasons, but here's what the conviction that develops at that point by the fourth century is that all the sin in the world, and the world is awful, right? The world is just awful. And people in the world, even Christians, right, commit all kinds of sins. 
So the view or the attitude towards God that we find expressed in some of the older books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, for instance, you know, God, God's always getting angry at the people because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And there's that scene in Genesis where uh, Abraham actually argues with God about this precise issue. God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham begins bargaining, saying, well, if you find this number of good people there, will you still destroy those cities? And the number keeps getting lower and lower in the bargaining, right? I forget exactly what number it ends up, but, you know, Abraham keeps dickering. Uh, What if you find uh, 10 just people, 10 good people? How about five good people? And, um, of course, Abraham wants primarily to bring God down to, to a very compassionate point so that even one good person in a community can help stave off God's wrath, God's anger. And this gets applied to monasticism, if, if you see what I mean. It's the same model. Would you say the people from that era, from what you've read and what you've studied, that was their primary motivation to constantly pray for their communities, for the world, uh, for their family members, for their cities and their towns? Yeah, I, I think it was. And, a- and they ended up becoming mystics from that constant prayer and that constant contemplation with God? Yes, in a, in a way. You know, it's a complex puzzle, how the pieces fit together. But yes, the answer to, to this is, is yes, basically yes. The idea that one is, through prayer, connecting to God, also means that if you are connecting to God, you can intercede for others. So yes, and then the prayer itself, you know, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to God, the, the more mystical uh, your experiences can become. So there is a um, sort of continuity, right? Between, no, continuity is not the right word. There, there, there is a two-way relationship between the self and God and between the self and community and between God and the community with the praying person or holy person. It's another term we can get to later. The holy person becoming an intercessor. And there are certain things to take in mind, keep in mind uh, about this world, the world of the Roman Empire, and even, you know, regions slightly outside beyond the Roman Empire which was this, this was a world filled with violence and oppression of all kinds. I mean, the, the, the Romans built nice roads and, and put up very, very durable buildings, but most of that was done by slave labor. Uh, and the slave labor was not obtained through niceness. Neither did they get to enjoy the luxury items that they built. That's right. And um, one has to keep in mind that un- until the fourth century, people went to the stadium or the arena, as as they preferred to call it, to watch men kill each other or or to watch men slaughtering animals in great numbers. And, you know, this this is not, not, we're not talking about boxing. (laughs) We're talking about people killing each other in front of. It was a very, it was a very violent time. And there really was not what we enjoy today or, or what we see today, the respect for life and not murdering your neighbor wasn't really that strong back in that era, I would imagine. Well, some of some of the horrors that we're now reading about, hearing about in Ukraine, the, the barbarity of that war was normal in the Roman Empire. That's how the empire expanded. They invaded other places and took over and did all sorts of horrible things to the people to bring them under Roman rule. And uh, who benefited from it? Well, the slaves usually did not. And, you know, slaves did most of the work on those structures that still survive 2,000 years later. 
but more than that, you know, the morality of Roman culture was very far from the morality of Jewish or Christian culture. Would you say that difficult time that they were, that they all, that, that the, that difficult time that the world lived in where there was so much violence, there was so much misery, uh, poverty, slavery, the world was just, unless you were a very wealthy, well-connected political person, the world was just not a pleasant place to be in. Would would you say that's how, in the in terms of monasticism, how the hermit monks came to be? They just wanted to get away from from the distractions and oh, yes. and and all that, just to be able to pray in peace and not be yes, and not not be lured by all the temptations of this world where there was a lot of sexual license and not not just not to be lured by these temptations but to flee from all this violence and nastiness and one also has to keep in mind something very important which is that at this time in human history very few people married for love marriages were usually arranged and and the family had more of a say and who got married to whom than the individuals who were getting married. So when you think about the fact that uh, these men and women who fled to the desert practiced uh, a life of celibacy and refused to get married and refused to have children, they were escaping a a system, a, a society in which marriage could be fairly similar to slavery especially for women, but also for men, you know, to be tied to someone that turned out to be not the best match for you. (laughs) And uh, going out by yourself to pray, you're following God's command, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, and pray, Paul, um, I can't remember which letter he says, pray ceaselessly. That's another very important New Testament passage where Paul advises his community that he's writing to pray ceaselessly pray all the time and um i don't i do know where this this quote can be found uh the first letter of peter peter says keep watch keep watch be careful all the time because the devil is always prowling about like a roaring lion waiting to eat you up and, uh, you know, that's a reference to all of the temptations that you can be faced with in the world. So fleeing is one way of doing it. And then add to this, you know, to go back to the point where we were a few minutes ago, add to this the thought or conviction that by doing this, you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for the rest of the world. And there you have the selfishness issue lessened quite a bit, made not as prominent. Well, we we spoke about the hermit monks and we've spoken about monasteries where several monks are together. Did hermit monks start first and then several of them got together and yes. started monasteries? Yeah. So it, it was it was a gradual or it moved in that direction. It started with the hermits yes. and then then they started to band together and founded monasteries. Yeah, that's what happened. And um, if I could back up just a little tiny bit to provide the context for this development, is that, you know, being by yourself out in the desert, it's not easy. And there were many, many, uh, we have plenty of texts as proof of the fact that many men and women went out there and actually uh, either went overboard, you know, with with the excess of self-denial, or they failed completely because it's such a hard thing to do, to be out there by yourself praying all day. So excess and failure had a lot to do with the transition from the hermit life to the communal, communal uh, life. I imagine there's some fascinating stories of some of these hermits. Oh, on what they did. Yes, uh, maybe I should we spend a few minutes with uh, some of these accounts because I, I can read. Yeah, I think I, I I think our our listeners would like to hear. I know I would would like to hear a couple of these stories. Uh, these are say from the 
we have many so-called sayings of the desert fathers and we also have sayings from the desert mothers the women who also went out as as hermits but the uh, from the sayings of the desert fathers the apothegmata that's the greek word you get you get certain glimpses of, of men who are so focused on their goal that they go to excess and you also occasionally also run into stories of men who just can't take it and fall off the wagon as, as we say in American English but here here's how it all begins okay here's a saying from the Desert Fathers Abba Arsenius prayed Abba means father that's what they began to call the older monks right the younger monks would call the older more experienced hermits father Abba that's the Greek for I mean the the Hebrew for for father so Abba Arsenius prayed quote Lord show me the way to salvation end of quote and a voice came to him quote run from men and you shall be saved be silent be solitary be at rest these are the roots of a life without sin now that's extreme that's very extreme be silent be solitary be at rest and that's the quest for perfection right these are the roots of a life without sin but they they they, they could go not a, a little they could go way way beyond what we might consider healthy in their self-denial here's another one a disciple of uh, Abba so-and-so said to him father you have grown old let us go into the world for a short time and Abba so-and-so said to him yes provided we go where there are no women <laughs> and uh so self-denial never ends never never ends yeah uh here's another story an old man saw and by an old man they mean an old hermit right an old man saw a man laughing and said to him so this exchange between two hermit monks who occasionally met with each other right they have conversations they help each other with tips you know how do you do that an old man saw a man laughing said to him quote we have to render an account of our whole life before heaven and earth and you laugh as the shadow goes everywhere with the body so we ought to carry penitence and lamentation with us wherever we go so no laughing here yeah, this is too serious a business for laughing I'll just read a few more an hour's sleep is enough for a monk that is if he is a fighter all rest of the body is an abomination to the Lord and here's one of my favorites they said of one hermit that he sometimes longed to eat a cucumber right fasting and you might wonder why a cucumber well cucumbers were, were uh, many of these hermits were veg vegetarians or vegans so uh, cucumbers were were very pure so he he longed to eat a cucumber he was hungry so he took one and hung it in front of himself where he could see it he was not overcome by his longing and did not eat it but tamed himself and repented that he had wanted to eat it at all so you know any psychiatrist nowadays would tell you that this is not healthy and here's I'll read one more which shows you the extremes that they could go to and how aware they could be that they were going to extremes at a meeting of the brothers they were eating dates one of them who was ill from excessive fasting I'll pause there it's part of the narrative they knew he was ill from excessive fasting one of them who was ill from excessive fasting brought up some phlegm in a fit of coughing and unintentionally it fell on another of the brothers this brother was tempted by an evil thought and driven to say be quiet and don't spit on me pause for a second this is an evil thought to tell the man to be quiet and not spit well yeah evil thought the story continues so to tame himself and restrain his own angry thought he picked up the phlegm that had been spit on him 
put it in his mouth and swallowed it. And then he began to say to himself, if you say to your brother things that will make him sad, you will have to eat what nauseates you. And it's this kind of unhealthy self-loathing that could develop in the hermit situation. But you also see a lot of those rules in monasteries as well. They will carry over to some extent. But the thing about the shift to communal monasticism is a lessening of extremes. And you find this uh, especially uh, by the 5th and 6th century. You begin to see a, a lessening of all this. And this is where a community can help put a lid on the excessive fasting, excessive self-punishment. Yeah, but there's no denying that some, you know, some of the people who are now known as the greatest Christian mystics, they did terrible things to their bodies, uh, you know, wrapped them in chains, wore hair shirts, uh, fasted to excess, and um, did all others, whipping themselves even. So, um, yeah, this is the... Um, you know, mysticism is not all um, roses and perfume. <laughs> Carlos, would you say that there was a any real difference between the hermits and the monasteries between the East Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and and the Latin West Church? Uh, I, we we know from reading history that there were always uh, a lot of those a lot of differences between them throughout the first century of the church and culminating in the great schism in the 11th century. But would you say there was a, a big difference between them? I wouldn't say big. Uh, it actually begins in the East. It begins in Egypt, Palestine, and Syria and spreads to, you know, like present day Turkey. It takes longer for it to, you know, make it to the Western Mediterranean part of the Roman Empire. So it begins in the East. And, and in the East, you end up having, um, you know, the transition to communal uh, monasticism is, it's gradual. And by the fourth century, you've got communities in Egypt and Syria and other places. And by the fourth century, there's a great theologian and churchman of the Eastern Church uh, St. Basil the Great, who writes a rule for monastic communities. And the rule of Basil the Great will become the most widely observed rule in the Orthodox East. In the West, it will be St. Benedict of Norcia, who uh, lived in the 6th century. And uh, so you see the time difference there. Uh, Benedict had tried to be a hermit and failed, and but he knew about com, uh, you know communities, so and there were other communities around him. He began one of his own in Italy, at Monte Cassino, uh, south of Rome, and it was there Monte Cassino he wrote a rule for his community that was originally only for his community, but it became gradually the most widely used rule in the Catholic world, in the West. And when it came to, you know, lifestyles and, and, and the rhythms of prayer and um, what it was that monks did with their time, there were great similarities. In the East, however, especially in Syria, you do have a continuation of uh, extreme hermits that you don't see to the same extent in the West. Perhaps the best known extreme hermit of the Christian East was St. Simeon Stylides. His dates are 390 to 459. He went, climbed to the top of a pillar of a destroyed ancient structure and lived on top of that pillar for about 30 years, all by himself, and never moved from that pillar. And he became very, very well known. And the world came to him. Even the, the emperor would send emissaries to see 
Simeon and, and beg for his prayers. Eventually, his uh, followers had to build like a little platform there on top of the pillar as he got older so he wouldn't fall off. But uh, the pillar saints the in the East, uh, numerous. It was a kind of special monastic profession. And um, of course, we should uh, at this point make clear that some of these uh, holy men, and there were holy women too, gained miraculous powers and it could heal people. They could read minds, so we're told. And another uh, aspect of this constant life of prayer and of constant encounter with the divine is that these men and women acquired great wisdom, even greater wisdom than that of learned scholars. And there are many stories about them, you know, debating with with heretics where they actually trounce the heretics with their arguments because their knowledge of Christian theology and, and, and Christian ethics is so profound. So in the East, back to your question, in the East, you do find for a longer period of time, these extreme ascetics. But the, the majority of monks in the East, majority of monks in the West, they live in communities and they live lives that are very similar, except for, you know, what we might say are minor details. Now we're running out of time and we're getting to the end here, but I wanted to ask you, we all know monasteries are still in existence and all over the world, but are there any monasteries that existed back in those early third, fourth, fifth century that are still in operation today? There are some. Yes. Uh, one of the best known is uh, St. Catherine's in the Sinai Desert, which uh, I don't know exactly when it was founded, but it is unique in that uh, there was a time in the 8th, 9th century where the in, in the Eastern Christian Church, images suddenly became uh, prohibited and images were destroyed, sacred images. And actually many monks in the East became martyrs defending their images. But there's one that St. Catherine's in, 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 in Sinai was outside of the Eastern Roman Empire, outside its boundaries. So the images survived there unbroken and it has some of the oldest icons anywhere. And there are monasteries in, in Syria that are very, very old. And some of them uh, actually faced destruction during this latest uh, war in Syria. Uh, there are some very ancient monasteries in Ethiopia too. And um, in Egypt, um, most of the monasteries are, uh, are the, the oldest ones are gone. And now actually there, uh, there's a program here at Yale, an archeological dig at two of those Egyptian monasteries. They're, they're just ruins. And in the West, Monte Cassino, you know, founded by uh, Benedict, survived, still there. And not only that, uh, the, the name might sound familiar to people who know much about the Second World War. During the Second World War, as you know, Italy was allied with Germany. And at one point, the Italians were losing their war so quickly and so atrociously that the Germans took over. So the Germans actually encamped at the monastery in Monte Cassino. And that was one of the worst battles on, on the Italian front during the Second World War. And the end result was that the monastery was bombed to smithereens. Nothing remained but rubble at the birthplace of Western monasticism. But they rebuilt it, and it's there. And if you go on one of those bus tours from Rome to Pompeii, they usually stop at Monte Cassino, uh, not actually at the monastery, but at the gift shops just below the monastery. So yeah, and in Greek, the most uh, in Greece, the most famous uh, cluster of monasteries, which are very, very, very old. I, I can't date their beginnings 
are on Mount Athos. There's a peninsula in northern Greece where there's a mountain, Mount Athos, but that, that entire peninsula is a collection of very, very, very old monasteries. So yeah, they're still around. And most and I'm I was just gonna add, most of the texts that we have, right, through which we know about mysticism are written by monks and nuns. They would know. So I, I imagine with all of these monasteries that are still existence, we, we have modern day mystics now. We at least there there should be. We just don't hear about them. Well, the thing is that or don't hear as much as we should about them. That's that's more. Yeah, that's a, that's basically what I was going to say. And one of the hallmarks of the mystical life is humility and which there isn't much of in this world these well, days. Well, no, yeah, right. That's against, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But humility is is one of the chief virtues. So these mystics, they don't go around parading in front of people saying, hey, look, I'm a mystic. Isn't this great? Look what I can do. No. <laughs> they, uh, they spend their life praying. There have been some, you know, well-known uh, modern mystics. Perhaps the most well-known of all is Padre Pio, who is now Saint Padre Pio. Yeah, we have to do an episode on yeah. him. I don't want to get too deep into him because he's one of my favorites. Yeah, so. you know, he, he died in 1968, so, and he was canonized not too many years ago. But I remember as a child uh, people in, in Cuba talking about Padre Pio because he had this stigmata and he had some of these mystical gifts that Christian mystics have had for centuries. Yeah, he's definitely a, a modern day mystic and and he is fully deserving not only of a sainthood but of a, but of a exclusive episode on the Christian mysticism podcast. Yeah. And um actually just a couple weeks ago uh, you this is I I was totally surprised. There's actually a Padre Pio Center here in Connecticut. And the funny thing about it is that it's in a city named Cromwell, Cromwell, Connecticut, which is named after the leader of the Puritan revolt in England, a man who persecuted Catholics, the man who conquered Ireland and, and slew thousands of Irish Catholics in that town is the Padre Pio Center. <laughs> Talk about twists of fate. Yes. Sometimes God has a marvelous sense of humor. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk much about mystics within monasticism today, but I think it's very important to keep in mind that, you know, this constant prayer, constant prayer, constant self-denial is, is such an important key issue for the mystical life. I know we didn't talk a lot about individual mystics, but I think for me, at least this conversation that we had today really gives me a good idea of how monasticism helped form the Christian mysticism movement and was the source of all these mystics we will soon explore in, in future episodes. But I think that's my key takeaway from this conversation and it's a good foundation to to understand where these mystics are coming from the the life of self-denial the life of asceticism of of extremes to be honest yeah just an extreme life extreme prayer ex extreme self-denial extreme devotion is really the key to becoming or the key to to the making of a mystic right and but but it but like all the other topics we discussed today, it's fascinating and very important for us to know. So what are you going to have for us on our next episode? Well, we can skip ahead a, a few centuries and um, we can deal with a monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, who um, led a, a reform of monasticism and was himself not only a mystic, but uh, believe it or not, quite a powerful figure, not just in the church of his day, but also in the secular world in his own day. 
because in many ways the monks and the nuns these professional prayers right these prayer machines you can view them as prayer machines right they come to have despite their desire to leave the world they come to have quite great influence over the world uh, both in the christian east and the christian west but in the christian west because of the fall of the roman empire they come to have an influence that's that's different from the influence that the eastern christian mystics have on on their secular society so bernard is um, quite an interesting example of the way in which monasticism not only breeds mystics but also you know paradoxically breeds very active people who are actually you know more than knee deep let's say neck deep in the world while they do their praying well i know i'm looking forward to that conversation with you for the next episode but thank you carlos for for joining us this is very enjoyable for me so well it's enjoyable for myself as well and hopefully enjoyable for our listeners so thank you thank you once again thank you i'm going to lose track of how many we have already done (laughs) well today we're recording our fifth episode oh wow so yeah time flies so until the next time thank you all for listening to the christian mysticism podcast if you have any questions for dr air you'll find our email address in the show notes just send it on over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode and don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.